From Schwartz Media, I'm Elizabeth Kulas. This is 7am. As Scott Morrison's tax cuts make their way through the parliament, there are fresh questions over religious freedoms. Paul Bongiorno on pragmatism and our Pentecostal Prime Minister. Hi, Paul. Is that you, Elizabeth? It is. When you're ready, I'm ready. Okay. Paul, what's happening in Canberra? Well, what's happening in Canberra is the government has had a big win by getting its massive $158 billion five-year tax plan passed through the Senate. Paul Bongiorno is a columnist for the Saturday paper. This is a vindication in a real sense of its election win. And despite grave reservations in the Labor Party, even graver ones in the Greens Party with its nine senators, the government was able to get the four crossbench senators it needed. Corey Bernardi, who's basically a repentant liberal these days. The two Centre Alliance senators and Jackie Lambie from Tasmania. Jackie Lambie, welcome back to Canberra. Welcome back to breakfast. Thank you so much. Lovely to be back on. Well, Jackie Lambie, today is D-Day. For the record, will you support the tax cuts? Yes, I will be supporting the tax cuts, Fran. And what's... This is a huge win for Scott Morrison. Well, it is a huge win for Scott Morrison. It's in line with the win he had on election day. And what it does show is that that election win, even though it was very tight, and even though they have a one-seat working majority in the House of Representatives, one of the tightest majorities you can get, there is no doubt that this election shifted momentum in a very big way away from Labor and towards the coalition. And political momentum is everything because political momentum weakens the morale and the will of the opposition parties and sends a message to the crossbench that the zeitgeist, if you like, of the nation is more with the government than it is with the opposition. Paul, so tax certainly dominated the week, but there are details still filtering in about what happened in the final weeks of the election, it being the first week that Parliament sits since the election. What are you hearing from some inside the Labor Party? Well, Elizabeth, it's interesting. They say that perception is reality in politics. And I think that the first sitting week after the election, perception and reality coincided for the Labor Party, the realisation that they lost. And just talking to one senior Labor person, he said to me that Sure, we were ahead in the polls all the time, but he says it was more like we were 46 and the Libs were 43. And what we'd underestimated and what, in fact, both the published pollsters and Labor's own pollsters didn't quite get is that that protest vote that would deliver a majority went massively to One Nation, to Palmer and to other independents. And what was unusual was that protest vote came back in the order of more than 80% in most instances, therefore delivering in Queensland two seats to the coalition and in other states blocking Labor's uh, ambition. Paul, in the end, it was very close, though. Labor nonetheless hugely rattled by the result. Why were they so rattled? Can you talk me through what the psychology is around that. Yeah, well, basically Labor's own polling 
right up on to the eve of the election being called, showed that it was ahead in 20 to 21 seats. Now, in the end, they won one of those 21 seats and they lost two others that they had to defend. So psychologically, the the election result was like a 20-seat landslide for them. So it's rattled their confidence. It, it, it's shaken them. And of course, it's mightily emboldened, if you like, the Liberals and the Nationals. The other point to make, that the election result was more disastrous for Labor than it was for the Liberals in terms of marginal seats. The Liberals only have three marginal seats under 2% and Labor's got eight. In other words, Labor, at least on paper, is highly vulnerable to going even further backwards at the next election if Morrison can consolidate and win over the confidence of more voters. So, Paul, the coalition's one-seat majority essentially feels like a 20-seat landslide. Exactly, Elizabeth, and sort of delve into that just a little bit further. You might remember at the previous election, Turnbull emerged with a one-seat majority, but that was after losing 14 seats. So the momentum, even though Labor lost that, the political momentum was with shortened Labor, whereas this time the political momentum is with Scott Morrison. We'll be right back. Need a reminder of what political leadership looks like? Australia's master of political satire, Jonathan Biggins, is back embodying the iconic Paul Keating, visionary, reformer and rabble-rouser. Due to overwhelming demand, one-man comedy The Gospel According to Paul is returning to the Opera House, on from the 4th to 23rd of June for its final term ever. Secure your tickets now at sydneyoperahouse.com for an unforgettable evening. For Sloane Crosley, writing about the loss of a friend may not have provided catharsis, but it did allow for the possibility of a better ending. Like you have this amazing meal that's this friendship, and then you have a really, 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 really bad dessert with shards of glass in it. And then like the book is like, you know, those little chunks of chocolate that come with the bill. I'm Michael Williams. Join me for this week's episode of Read This as I talk to Sloane Crosley about her latest Grief is for People. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. So, Paul, Parliament is back sitting in Canberra this week and much of the debate has been about tax cuts, but you've been looking at religious freedoms as well. What does this issue tell us about Scott Morrison? Yes, well, Scott Morrison is in the situation that everybody knows that he is a a committed Pentecostal Christian and he's under enormous pressure from the religious right to do something about religious discrimination. So that's on the agenda, and he keeps promising to deliver, but he also keeps pushing back on when he will actually deliver. And who is Morrison disappointing by not rushing forward on this? Uh, One very senior church source tells me what's worrying people like Archbishop Fisher and Archbishop Davis up in Sydney is that they see that the successful politician Morrison is a ruthless pragmatist. Now, that pragmatism of Morrison is coming through to this extent, that he realises that this whole debate on religious discrimination and religious freedom is fought. The churches themselves are beginning to realise they're in a bit of a corner here. And yesterday I was talking to advisers in the Prime Minister's office. When I asked, when are you going to bring in the religious discrimination bill? They said, we're not bringing in a discrimination bill. We're working on a religious freedom bill. Now, that's a subtle but important difference. 
And whether that will suit the churches is open to debate. Tell me what that looks like. Well, look, you'll need to do a lot of work to convince middle Australians when he talks about wanting to govern from the centre that he means it. It looks like he wants to avoid legislation that would play into, you know, a stereotype that he is a right-wing ideologue. So as a result, uh, in the government party room on, on Tuesday, he warned his MPs and senators to avoid more controversy on religious freedom. And what do you think that signals more broadly? I think it's a sure sign that Morrison's political antenna shows that Australia basically, as a nation, has a more secular sentiment than it does have a religious sentiment. Now, Morrison told his party room he wants to work carefully and consultatively. In fact, on Wednesday, he met Anthony Albanese and he urged Albanese to work with him on this issue of religious freedom. He said he will consult Labor, he will consult church leaders. So the tater-tate with the opposition leader was characterised by the Prime Minister's office and indeed by Albanese's as the Prime Minister looking for areas of collaboration on contentious issues. And given that this is about faith in politics and how faith is publicly displayed in politics, is Morrison's concern that he might appear to be too religious for the Australian public? Yes, I think that's it. I mean, he he has said when he's been tackled on his belief or his faith over the years that his faith is his business. My personal faith, Mr Speaker, in Jesus Christ is not a political agenda. As Lincoln said, our task is, is not to claim whether God is on our side, but to pray earnestly that we are on his. For me, faith is personal, but the implications are social. He's not out to ram it down people's throats. So he is aware that if he feeds the stereotype, uh, it could be a political negative for him. Paul, there are also two former prime ministers watching on as the 46th parliament opened. Yes, there were two former Liberal Prime Ministers there. They were Tony Abbott and John Howard. Notable by his absence, of course, was Malcolm Turnbull. He wasn't there, mainly because the election result was probably even another harsh judgment on him as much as it was on Labor. But anyway, the two who were there, of course, were champions for the religious right and for Australian Conservatives. But Morrison is perceived to be more in the pragmatic mould of John Howard And one of the things that made John Howard our second longest serving prime minister was that he was very canny, very cunning as well, and quite ruthless, as we saw particularly uh, over the issue of asylum seekers. But he was also pragmatic. And uh, I think that people would say that if Morrison moulds himself more on Howard than Abbott, he could be there for a long time. And Paul, what can we expect next week, do you think? Well, next week the Parliament gets up for uh, a couple of weeks. It doesn't come back till the end of July. I suspect um, things will go a little bit quieter. Um, Labor will continue to lick its wounds and I wouldn't be surprised if uh, the Prime Minister and his senior ministers remind the nation that um, he's delivering tax relief because from next week, something like 10 million Australians, it's, it's being phased down, will expect to get their $1,080 tax rebate. <laughs> That's no small thing. Paul, thank you so much, as always. Thank you, Elizabeth. Have fun. Bye. Sloane Crosley is known for her funny and acerbic personal essays. 
But her new memoir digs much deeper to examine the loss of her best friend. Join me, Michael Williams, as I chat with Sloane about Grief is for People. Find it wherever you listen. Elsewhere in the news, on Thursday afternoon, the Prime Minister confirmed that Alex Sigley, the Australian who'd been missing for over a week in North Korea, had left the country. Sigley was released and safely transferred to the Australian Embassy in Beijing with the help of Swedish authorities. And The Guardian reports that former Environment Minister Melissa Price approved plans for a uranium mine in Western Australia the day before the election was called, despite advice that it could result in the extinction of up to 12 native species. In a statement of reasons relating to her decision, Price said that she accepted that there was a risk, but that it was not inevitable, according to departmental advice. Price declined to comment on the approval, stating that she was now focused on delivering in her new role as Defence Industry Minister. 7am is produced by Emile Klein, Ruby Schwartz and Atticus Basto with Michelle Macklem. Eric Jensen is our editor. Our theme music is by Ned Beckley and Josh Hogan of Equate Studio. Special thanks this week go to Zasha Rosen. If you've got a moment, please subscribe to the show through your favourite podcast app or leave us a review if you listen on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps others find the show and that helps us. This is 7am. I'm Elizabeth Kulas. See you next week.